0: There's a striking metaphor that God uses to describe his word. And the metaphor goes like this. The author of Hebrews writes, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Intimately associated things, the word of God has the ability, the dexterity to separate, to cut away, to remove that which is harmful so that that which is healthy can grow and flourish. Scripture is like a scalpel in the hand of a skillful surgeon. And that surgeon is the Holy Spirit working through the instruments of the Scripture. So with great precision and dexterity, The Spirit, working through the agency of Scripture, maneuvers into the deep recesses of the human soul and the human heart, cutting away what needs to be removed, pruning that which is unhelpful so that which is healthy can grow, exposing, cutting away. The same Word of God can be used... In multiple different ways, with multiple different outcomes and applications in human hearts. For example, the same scripture has the ability to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. The same scripture, the same truth, mined out of the Bible, has the power in a given Bible study or a sermon or a one-on-one conversation To comfort the afflicted or to afflict the comfortable. I want to explore with you this morning how a truth in the Word of God has that kind of skill and precision and dexterity to afflict the comfortable and to bring comfort to the afflicted. The truth that comes to center stage in our text is what is known as the Day of the Lord, also known as the Return of Christ. In the Old Testament, the prophets speak of the great and awful day of the Lord, and we'll unpack why it's described like that. The truth of the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, has the ability to comfort the afflicted in this life and also to afflict the comfortable in this life. Let's turn in our Bibles to the letter of First Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you can find that on page 987 on the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, page 987. This morning we continue in our New Testament sermon series uh, that we've entitled, Power for Life, Hope, and Death. Power for Life, Hope, and Death. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides us power to live the Christian life well, and it provides us hope in the midst of the reality of death. Power in life, hope in death. If you're here today and you need a copy of the scripture, I mention this every Sunday, we would love to give you a Bible. So if you need one in the lobby, there's a stack of hardback black Bibles. Please take one. If a friend needs one, you give them to your friend as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'll read verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons... Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. To obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I want to unpack this passage in two parts. It it, it unfolds in two parts. In verses 1 through 3, we see a word of affliction for the comfortable, A word of affliction for the comfortable. And then verse 4 through 11, we see a word of comfort for the afflicted. A word of comfort for the afflicted. And the take-home truth. What I want to persuade you of this morning is that the return of Christ, also known as the day of the Lord, as we'll see in this text, will be a day of condemnation for unbelievers and a day of salvation for believers. That's the dichotomy. That's the difference that we see. The day of the Lord will be a day of condemnation, a fearsome day for unbelievers, but also a day of salvation, a joyful day for believers in Christ. First, a word of affliction for the comfortable. We see this word that is intended to convict, to afflict in verses 1 through 3. Paul says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. That now concerning phrase is oftentimes what Paul says when he's addressing a certain topic that has come up to him in in letter form or in report form. We know that Timothy has just visited the Thessalonian church. He's brought back a report from Paul. They're questioning, they have anxiety over the return of Christ and how that's going to shake out for them specifically. You have no need to have anything written to you about the times and the seasons. The times and the seasons are, that's biblical language for the end times. Jesus himself uses this kind of language in Acts chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. As He he's preparing to ascend to the right hand of the Father, he says, Luke says they had come together and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They're asking about his full reign that is going to be unleashed. And he's saying the times and the seasons are are not for you to know the exact date of and the specifics of. Which is a teaching point for us because throughout this, these people work with timelines and charts and kind of get fixated on the exact day and the hour. We're just called to be sober minded and be ready. No one knows the day or the hour. And so, the times and seasons, they're speaking of the end times, the, the, the return of Christ when he comes to establish his everlasting reign. Regarding this. Return of Christ, the the end time. There is some underlying anxiety within the Thessalonian church. Paul knows this from Timothy's report, his visit to them. There's a feeling that perhaps they weren't prepared for the return of Christ. There's also some sudden deaths that have hit the church. We don't know the the. The circumstances surrounding those deaths, we know that it's a persecuted church, so it could be related to physical persecution. It could be related to sickness. All we know is that sudden death has hit the church. And like we've experienced in our own church over the last year, and just in life in general, death has a way of bringing sobriety to a church. Death has a way of quickening the hearts and minds of Christians of zeroing zeroing in on what's important and what really matters and what your life is to be about. So these people find themselves quickened, somewhat anxious and unsettled about their lives and about their eternal destinies. And so what Paul does in the midst of this anxiousness is he seeks to reassure them. He's the consummate pastor who knows his people, who has his finger on the pulse of his people. So he, he seeks to reassure them, to assuage their anxiousness. He reminds them of the truth of the day of the Lord, that he's taught them. He says, you have no, no need to, me to reteach this. I've taught this to you, but I'm going to remind, it, remind you of it. The day of the Lord, a day of salvation for believers, a day of condemnation for unbelievers, and he's assuring them, he's encouraging the believers there that this is a day of hope and joy for you. You ought not fear. You're not walking in spiritual darkness. You're walking in the light of Christ. It's not a day to be feared. It's a day to anticipate with joy because your Savior is coming. So he's reassuring some unsettled and anxious believers about the outcome of that day, what fate will be. Paul says, you have no need to have anything written to you. I've already answered this during the mission while I was there in Thessalonica. He's taught them the truth about the day of the Lord. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul has expounded upon this truth of the day of the Lord. It is all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets are thick with the truth of the day of the Lord, the great and awful day of the Lord. Interesting designation, description. The great and awful day of the Lord. Why is it great? Why is it awful? Well, it's a great day of salvation for those who are walking in righteousness, who are clinging to the Lord, who trust in Him. It's a great and joyous day. It is an awful day for those who are rejecting the ways of the Lord, who are content to live apart from Him and have life their own way. It's a day of fear and terror and condemnation for those who are rejecting the Lord. Isaiah speaks of this. Jeremiah speaks of this. Obadiah speaks of this. Amos. Here's a glimpse from the prophet Joel. So on the one hand, it is a day of condemnation. Joel chapter 1 verse 15. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. It is a fearsome day of judgment. And simultaneously, it's a joyous day of salvation. Joel chapter 2 verses 31 and 32. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Do you hear what he's saying? Call on the Lord. It's a day of salvation for those who are calling on the Lord. The great and awful day of the Lord. Great day of salvation for believers, an awful day of condemnation for unbelievers. The same scriptural truth has the power in the hands of the Spirit to serve as a scapel, afflicting the comfortable in this life and also comforting the afflicted. Where do you find yourself today? Confident in your independence, perhaps skeptical, doubting of Christianity, self-sufficient? We're glad that you're here. But I want you to know as a friend and as a pastor, the word of God is intended to bring right conviction in your heart, to show you your need, to show you your plight apart from Christ. The day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of condemnation if you reject Him. But maybe you're here, you're trusting in Christ, but you're discouraged in the battle of this life, seeking to walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus, hurting, afflicted, discouraged, whatever the case may be. Keep your eyes on that great day of salvation. It is intended to bring you hope and power in the present to live well to persevere the great and awful day of the lord paul links up with jesus words in matthew chapter 24 and luke 12 about the suddenness of the day of the lord the thief in the night motif does not begin with paul jesus used it in his own teaching his gripping teaching on the day of the Lord, on his second coming. The thief in the night is is unexpected. It is sudden. It will happen fast. It is also unwelcome by unbelievers. The thief in the night is intended to convict the comfortable, those who are living apart from Christ. The thief in the night is, is not intended to scare believers. Paul goes on to say, you ought not be surprised. You know he's coming. Anticipate it. Be ready. Be sober-minded. The thief in the night, this fearsome image, is intended to awaken unbelievers. It's unwelcome like a thief breaks into your house. It's unwelcome. It's frightening. It will come fast and terrifying for those who are walking apart from Christ. Notice what he says in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. People will falsely, pridefully think that they're immune from God's judgment. They will think that they can live their lives how they jolly well please and they're not accountable. No one's coming to ask them for an account. Does that sound familiar to you? That is the culture that we live in. I will live my life How I want, thank you very much. I am unaccountable. That is false. That's delusional thinking. There is coming a day where all will give an account. And Paul's just preaching this message, sharing this message to make people ready, to afflict the comfortable, to also comfort the afflicted. They will be saying peace and security harkens back to Jeremiah chapter 6, where Jeremiah indicts the prophets and priests of Israel who were saying, Peace, peace, shalom, shalom, where there was no shalom, there was no peace. These false prophets are speaking messages of comfort, speaking words that the itching ears of the people wanted to hear. We all want to hear good news, but God sent prophets to share the bad news so that they can turn and repent. People saying, Oh, peace. It's all good. No. No. False prophets speaking peace when there was no peace. It's delusional thinking that you can live an unaccountable life. We are all accountable. Brothers and sisters, people have a propensity to be deluded, to believe what we want. For our own false sense of convenience and comfort in this life, it's delusional There's coming a day of reckoning. Don't live your life thinking you're immune from God's judgment. It's coming. The day of the Lord is coming, and it will come with suddenness. It will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, sudden and fast. And I realize I'm speaking out of turn here, but I've I've seen this happen three times with my wife. I remember March 22nd, 2014, Laura rolled out of bed at 4 a.m. I was kinda groggy, she's rolling out of bed. She feels something. Maybe like a little bit more than the typical flutter that she had felt of of our daughter moving inside her. She gets out of bed, something's a little off. And then at 5.30 a.m. I hear she's coming, footsteps determined, not to keep her husband asleep, but to wake her husband. Dane, something's happening, we've gotta go. It happens sudden. Progression and pain can kind of idle along, idle along, and then a quick change suddenly, and it's time to go to the hospital. That's the illustration that the Apostle Paul is using. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, sudden and fast, labor pain and progression can change quickly, on a dime. That's how the Lord will return. Unexpectedly. Surprisingly for those who are walking apart. Friend, be one who today walks with Jesus in view of that day that is coming. Be ready and sober-minded. That's the invitation of the passage. A word of affliction for the comfortable that you and I might be drawn and convicted and seeking him in faith and repentance. So a word of affliction for the comfortable. Secondly, second part, of this passage, a word of comfort for the afflicted. We see this in verses four through 11. It's a word intended to bring assurance and encouragement to this unsettled, anxious church. Paul says, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. He's speaking to the whole church. We see him use this brother language. It's the KJV, brethren. He's speaking to men and women. It's not just guys, men and women, church body, brethren. You're not in the darkness, So given this heavy teaching that he's just laid out about the day of the Lord, you ought not to be scared or afraid or anxious in any way because you're not walking in the darkness. You're not walking in spiritual separation from the Lord. You're children of the light, sons of the day. Your fate on the day of the Lord is a glorious one. He's going to gather you. You're going to be with him. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Children of the day. See, that is the realm of righteousness, the way of salvation. That's what it means to be a true Christian, to walk with the Lord, albeit imperfectly in this life, but to be growing in incremental steps of obedience and faith, the process of sanctification until you see the Lord face to face. You're walking in the light. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8. And to be children of the light or children of the day is just be walking with your Lord in intimacy and closeness. That's our calling as Christians. Walk in the light. Men and women love darkness. Why, John 3? Because their deeds they think are not exposed. They're all exposed before the Lord, though. Don't walk in darkness. Don't dabble in the deeds of unrighteousness. Walk in the light. We've been delivered from darkness. If you're a believer, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, there's kingdom transfer that happens when you trust in Christ. He has delivered us from the dominion, the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, a kingdom of light and life. That's our identity. That's our destiny. We are not of the night, Paul says. It's a powerful pastoral move here that you can just skip by. Notice he moves from the second person to the first person. You, 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 he's speaking in the second person. Suddenly, we, verse 1, are not of the night. It's a powerful pastoral move. Why? Paul is linking arms with them. We together have this identity. We together have this eternal security. He's linking arms with these discouraged Christians. This is our identity, our future. We are not of the night. How encouraging is it to have a mentor or a pastor say, You're with me, I'm with you in our common faith and the common outcome of that faith, salvation. We, Paul includes himself, in there. And he exhorts them, pushes for application in verses six through eight. Given your status as children of the light, continue to walk in the light. That's his line of reason. Given your identity, continue to walk in that way. In our household, we talk about what it means to be a Helsing. We are people that tell the truth. We are people who seek to do what's right. Cecile, Soren, and Dane, that's what it means to be a Helsing. Given that that's your identity, walk in it, do it, live it. That's what Paul's saying here. Given your status as children of the light, continue to walk in the light, walk with Jesus, live out your identity. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Given your identity as children of the light, continue to live well, walking with him in the light. Flee the deeds of darkness, Flee the comfort of a spiritual stupor in this life. Flee spiritual lethargy in this life. Brothers and sisters, that's kind of the inertia of life in a fallen world. It's just kind of like comfort and lethargy. That's the way that you're naturally going to go. That's the current of the culture. You have to fight. You have to put on armor, as Paul says, to go in the opposite direction, to counter the currents of the culture. It's not going to come easily. It's not going to come naturally. You're going to have to fight for it. And you're going to stick out and look strange at times. But that's what it is to be a sojourner in this fallen world. Be children of the light. Flee the deeds of darkness and continue to walk with Jesus. You see this battle language. Don your armor, Paul says. Put on the breastplate of faith and of love, the helmet, the hope of salvation. This is Ephesians 6, in one sense, but it's also Isaiah 59, verses 17 and 18. Here's what's so encouraging about this. So Paul's saying, look, you and I have to don our armor. We have to realize that if we're going to live well with Jesus in this life, there's going to be a fight. Expect a fight. Expect it to be difficult. This is expectation management 101. It's not going to be easy. Put on armor. You're going to take some shots. My football coach said, Dane, strap up your Chin strap, because you're about to get lit up. You're about to be in for a fight. Strap it up, put on your armor. It's not going to be easy. You're going to take some shots, but you're not alone. Because do you know who dons his armor before you do? This same imagery is used of the Lord himself in Isaiah 59 verses 17 and 18. It's the Lord who dons his armor. And enters the battle and execute judgment, executes judgment on his enemies and preserves his people. The Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate, Isaiah 59, 17. He puts on the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies... To the coastlands, he will render repayment. This is that day of reckoning. Know that the Lord is the one who puts on the armor first. And know that as you battle in this life for holiness, for pursuit of Christ, you're not alone. You're a co-battler, a co-soldier with the Lord Jesus. He's your commanding officer. He's your general. Take your cues from him. But he's with you in the fight. The battle is ultimately his, but you've got to fight too. Be encouraged. He's there with you. He's put on the armor already. Battle. It will be difficult to live well in this life. Don't expect a cakewalk. It's going to be hard. Paul concludes with this crescendo of gospel hope in verses 9, 10, and 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive or dead in Christ, we might live with him. He's saying their salvation is secure. Why is it secure? Because God has chosen them. That was his line of arguments from chapter 1 onward. Look at First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. He has chosen you. The success of their salvation is on the shoulders of the Lord, not on them. He has chosen you. You are destined not for wrath, he says here, verse 9, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, it's his work. It's his sovereign choice. He is going to see it through to the end. He who has called you is faithful. If 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. He will do it. He's carrying you through. You've been saved by grace. You're being sanctified by grace. He will see you through to the end. you got to walk with him. Cling to him but he's got the tighter grip. He's going to see you through to the end. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the basis of our hope. It's the basis of our empowerment and our motivation. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how he's done the salvation. He's the one who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have salvation because he died in our place as a substitute, was buried in a tomb, and rose victorious from the grave on the third day, conquering sin and death. And anybody, anybody who trusts in Jesus is forgiven of all their sin and will be with Christ forever. Whether you die before he comes, the scripture says you're immediately in his presence with him in paradise, awaiting your resurrection body, or if you're here at his return, he's going to gather you together. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, you're going to be with him forever. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. For all who will believe will receive salvation. You've been saved by grace, and you will persevere by grace. See this new covenant blessing language You've not been destined for wrath, but for salvation. You're on a trajectory, and the Lord's going to empower you and keep you along that pathway. Ezekiel speaks of this new covenant reality. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It's the work of conversion. You get a new heart, but it just doesn't end there. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a soft heart, a malleable heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is the empowerment for obedience in the Christian life? Is it you picking yourself up from your bootstraps and muscling it through this life? No. It's the spiritual heart transplant and the spirit of God that empowers you to obey. I will make you obey my statutes and my rules. Isn't that good news? We are saved by God's grace. We are sanctified by God's grace, persevering by the power of the Spirit at work in us. This is the ultimate power supply, ultimate motivation for upright living, knowing that you're not adrift out on a boat by yourself to the current no, you have a motor in the boat, it's the spirit that's driving you toward faith and obedience. Given this reality, verse 11, Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. He's just pastorally fueling the fire of their mutual encouragement. Strengthen each other's faith through regular reminders of the gospel. How do we strengthen each other today? Through regular reminders of the gospel. If you've been at Beacon for very long, you probably should be hearing some redundancy in some of my sermons. In all of my sermons. Because the sermons are intended to be a regular reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's diversity in genres in the scripture, Old and New Testament, but Jesus is the interpretive center that we're going to land on every time because the gospel is at the heart of the Bible. Regular reminders of the gospel is what we do on Sunday mornings, what we do in small groups, what we do in discipleship groups, is what the kids are learning. The gospel, regular reminders. Why? Because it edifies us, it builds us up, it strengthens us in our faith. The return of Christ, the day of the Lord, will be a day of condemnation for unbelievers and a day of salvation for believers. Friend, I just want to urge you to discern where you are spiritually this morning. May that day be a day that you anticipate and that you're ready for, because you're clinging to Christ, walking with him. Albeit imperfectly, look to him. He's gracious, he's empowering you. The purpose of preaching on the end times, sometimes called eschatology, all that means is the study of the end of things. The purpose of preaching the end times is not to tickle our curiosity, which sadly is how it often is studied in Christian circles and in churches. Thinking about the how and the when and the timing and the charts, there's some time to kind of do careful study with that, but in the end, know that the proper preaching of the end times is intended to motivate you to right living. Paul never writes or preaches on the end times without persuading people to a certain way of life. That's the goal, that's the motivation of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, that people would live well in light of Christ's return. May we live well live upright, sober lives, awaiting our Savior, and on that day, hear the glorious words that will come from his mouth to believers, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and receive the reward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity just to open it, to study it, to apply it. God, help us place ourselves in submission to your word. Do the work that only you can accomplish. Let it be a scalpel. Cutting to the deep recesses of our hearts and souls. Expose and remove what ought not to be there, Lord. Make your people, make your church holy. Holy. Father, for some in this room who are hardened towards you, who are walking in self-sufficiency and independence and content to live that way, God, I pray that you would quicken them, soften them, and draw them to yourself. We thank you that you are the Lord of salvation, the Lord of sanctification, and our lives are in your hands. Motivate us to live well this week. In Jesus' name, amen.